We've had a 25 basis point hike from the Federal Reserve. And look what has happened to the bond market. Look at where yields have gone with a 25 BIP hike, right? They've skyrocketed over the last several weeks, particularly the 10 years since the beginning of April, the yields have, have surged. To me, guys, that's really important because it shows you who's in control. Is it the Federal Reserve or is it the bond market saying, we believe the Fed's gonna price a billion hikes in? And my question to that is what happens if tomorrow they say, because of the weakening consumer demand, because consumer sentiments, you know, in the toilet, housing's declining. What if maybe we put a pause this summer on hikes? What if we say, we've done a couple, we're gonna reevaluate the fall. If they do that, I think you, the rocket ship sets sail. I mean, I, I, I think there's the market will turn on a dime because at this point with the over indebtedness, expectations is everything. Setting expectations is the whole name of the Fed's game at this point. It's all psychological theater. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Thanks for joining us here again on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. Today, we're joined by Joe Calisari. This is his second outing on our show, and he has delivered as usual. Joe is a lawyer specializing in commercial litigation. He's also the co-host of the Inside Bitcoin podcast. Joe is a rare bird, a polymath by the numbers. He's a lawyer by day and a fixed income credit market expert by night. His depth and breadth of knowledge in credit markets is stunning. In this conversation, we cover a lot of ground, including how and why political incentives are misguided, primarily because the money is broken, traditional markets are so broken, they need continual manipulation to function, how the market controls the Fed, not the Fed controlling the market, why QE has not proven inflationary while fiscal stimulus has been, we cover central banks eventually buying Bitcoin, and we talk about when Dan and myself will be putting out home mining fires in the near future. This conversation flirts in the weeds for some time. We encourage you to listen thoughtfully. Even if some of this is hard to grasp, you will come away better informed. After our talk, Joe recommended a book called The Bond Book. Preston Pish has also recommended this book in the past. If you want to dig into a deeper understanding of the bond markets, this is the book we recommend. I have it being delivered today. I'll be digging in later. You can follow Joe at Joe. Calisari, that's J-O-E-C-A-L-A-S-A-R-E, and check out his podcast, Inside Bitcoin, at InsideBitcoin21. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Blue underscore Collar BTC, or send us a message at Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast at Gmail. The Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast is sponsored by CoinKite. CoinKite is the producer of the cold card, the block clock, and the open dime. They have a devotion to security and privacy like no other company in the space. You may have heard of other companies getting hacked and losing customer data. This has never happened and likely never will because CoinKite takes security so seriously that they delete all customer data after your order. You heard that right. They forego all benefits of keeping customer data simply to provide maximum security and privacy to their customers. This is an ethos that we applaud and encourage companies in the space to emulate. Cold Card is absolutely the best hardware wallet in the industry, 
and security is absolutely paramount in its design. If you care about security, and you should, that's the entire purpose of a hardware wallet, then you should be using a cold card. The Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast is also partnered with Ledin. Ledin is a very unique financial services company with a highly principled Bitcoin forward perspective. They are the first ever digital asset lending platform to undergo a formal proof of reserve attestation, where an independent public accountant regularly attests that the company is properly accounting for client assets. Simply put, this company mirrors and embraces the transparency, accountability, and auditability of the Bitcoin protocol and network itself. If you've listened to this show much at all, you've certainly noticed that we advise our listeners to be careful, manage risk, and not get over leveraged. And that does include ensuring that any borrowing and lending decisions make sound mathematical sense based on your lifestyle-specific situation. Where available in your jurisdiction, Ledin offers a menu of powerful financial services. Keep ownership of your Bitcoin and access dollar loans with Ledin Bitcoin-backed loans. Harness your Bitcoin holdings to buy a new property or finance the home you already own with the upcoming Ledin Bitcoin mortgage product. Save Bitcoin and USDC to have access to Ledin dollar loans and their trading service, if available. You can look into Ledin's well-architected menu of services at Ledin.io. All right, plebs, sit back, relax, and enjoy this rip with Joe Calisari. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Well, guys, I can tell you this much. Um, there are few places I'd rather be tonight than with you two studs sipping a vodka tonic, talking about markets and Bitcoin. Joe, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thank you for joining us. And I completely forgot to go grab a drink, so I'll be sitting here dry. Wow. And c- congratulations on the newborn, by the way. We have thank to you. say that. Thank you, Joe. I, uh, Josh gave me a heartfelt gift yesterday morning. He gave me an open time with Bitcoin loaded from the day my son was born. And uh, seriously, it meant a lot. It's a great, great gift idea for Bitcoiners out there. I was actually just looking at the transaction because I thought maybe I did squeeze it into the right block, but it, not even close. It was like three hours later. But you know, there's not, there's not a, a next shot. time. I'll tell you right now, there's not a next time. We're, we're calling it here, at least for <laughs> on this side of the relationship, dude. Yeah. I was joking when we were in the hospital, like about getting side by side beds, like me getting <laughs> snipped and then recovering next to mom. Um, you could have had a, you know, you could have played that off. Like I'm, I'm, I'm hurting here too. You know, I got, I had a Voss cut, you know, you know, through my thin ball sack and it was, it's equivalent to what you just went through. Joe, we won't name names, but we do have people that have had, we have a guy at the department that's had to go Michael Scott and get a vasectomy reversed. Yikes. Not fun. I think we've had two of them. Have we had two? Yeah. There was another one. Joe, how are you? What? I'm doing great. Everything's wonderful. Um, you know, extremely busy um, dealing with a lot of Bitcoin litigation, Bitcoin related litigation. Uh, but that's a good thing. And uh, I am sort of every day I wake up excited to follow the markets and where Bitcoin's at and where the geopolitical scene is at. It just seems like an exciting time to be alive. It's never a dull moment in Bitcoin either. This thing is all over the place lately. Absolutely. Yeah. One one question I have just about 
you personally, like where, what's your routine or what are your strategies to find the time to explore the, the amount of stuff you explore? I mean, your, your depth of knowledge across a plethora of fronts is like fucking mind blowing. We're talking, you know, macro Euro dollar markets on chain. You're a commercial litigator by trade. I mean, the list could go like, where, where does the time come? What habits have you developed? sleep schedule like how, how are you exploring all this stuff how are you finding well, the time to turn these stones over horrible sleep schedule which i've kept basically since college like uh, so i i was so interested in so many things when i went to uh, to college economics politics philosophy i ended up doing like a triple major um, and since that time i've really never abandoned any of those different fields i've always tried to keep a hand in politics or philosophy economics and to me like to see the whole picture, you need all of that, um, particularly the economics piece. So, you know, I went to law school, which gave me the legal component of it. But at the same time, I was always interested in markets because, as you know, the, the markets, I, I recognized very early on, basically in college, that they're fundamentally broken and how the law basically reinforces the fundamental uh, broken nature of, of the markets. Uh, it was always interesting to me. So I've kind of it kept a finger in all of it um, at different periods of time, just like anybody's life. You have to sort of step away from markets and focus on the day job. But one of the cool things about being a lawyer is with billable hours, um, you know, I don't have a set schedule. It's not nine to five. So as long as I get my stuff done, get my assignments done, um, you know, work really well for my clients, I could be doing it at one in the morning mm. uh, right after reading a bunch of articles from Jeff Snyder. Uh, so that that's that's just always I love that lifestyle. I love the fact that you know I can dig into big important topics and try to get a nuanced view and also integrate all these different disciplines. Because, to, like I said, to me, if you're only seeing the economics piece and you're not factoring in the law, um, you're going to miss it. And I kind of think that relates to Bitcoin, right? Because there's so many different disciplines you need to understand Bitcoin. Yeah. It's part of the challenge why a regular person coming to it. If they don't understand money, if they don't understand how the legal system works, if they don't, you know, seizing assets, the basic things like that, they're not going to get Bitcoin. Um, it's a totally different paradigm shift. And the only way I can do justice to my contributions to the Bitcoin community uh, is to try to keep up on all these different disciplines, including politics. I mean, I think a lot of people in Bitcoin, um, pro they kind of just say politics. It's a bunch of BS. <laughs> I don't really care about this crap. Uh, you know, fix the money, fix the world. That's true. Right. But that. I think that you miss a whole lot of context of the next two to three to five years if you're completely ignoring the political scene. When you said that you recognized the system was broken in college, what aspects yeah. of it did you were you did you have in mind as what's broken? Did, was it did you have this fiat idea that the the money's broken, or was it something different than that? What, how did you come at this in, initially? Well, it actually came from philosophy class because, you know, if you, I don't know if you, any of you guys ever took uh, philosophy in undergrad and um, you, you start thinking about justice, you think about equality, you think about, you know, what's the correct way to order our lives together mm. uh, to create a just society. And to me, I started from like the ideal and all the ancient philosophers moving towards the modernists. And it just seemed like, wait a second, this system we currently have constituted uh, is so far from the ideal, you might as well just throw it out and create something new. And then I sort of went down an incrementalist path, like what changes can we make at the margins to fix things? How can we, you know, fix our entitlement spending? How can we have a government that's lean and mean and does no more than it needs to do? Uh, but I just kept saying, like, wait a second, there's this huge artifice that's created that pre prevents us from putting any real change in place. 
And if you're only fixing mm. things at the margins, you're not going to have a, a more just, orderly, beneficial society. You're not going to let us become a flourishing people. You're just going to hold us back. So to me, I, I went from sort of an incrementalist view to what some people call extreme. I think it's the only sensible approach, which is Bitcoin. Let's fix the whole economic system from the ground up. You know, one thing I have said, Joe, is intentions are not enough. Incentives ultimately drive behavior. I mean, intentions right. are great, right? I'm not undermining like when people are coming from a good spot, but it really is the incentive structure that changes how the world functions. And not to get like political right off the bat, but that's where I think like you can defend some uh, leftist redistributive sort of big government ideas is like the intentions from a lot of those people are pure, but the, the way the incentive structure is arranged isn't necessarily practical, right? And I think that's kind of the angle, at least I come from when I look at this space. And it sounds like you're hinting at some of that with, with the lens you looked in at this from, from a philosophical viewpoint. Yeah. I mean, it, we, we grew up, right? Uh, we're very similar in ages, right? We grew up in the same type of thing where we saw politicians that even claimed to be pure ideologically from like a center right, you know, uh, sort of standpoint, um, free market standpoint. And then as soon as they achieve power, because they're trying to appease and, and cater to those incentives that you're talking about, they're enacting massive expansions of the welfare state. They're spending a ton of money, even though they campaigned as being fiscally conservative. And it's all because, to your point, the incentive system to get them reelected is based on them doing those things. It's based on them handing things out. You know, we had con supposedly conservative presidents during the early 2000s that were putting in place massive expansions of uh, the welfare state and spending, you know, well beyond our means. That, that sort of philosophy, I think, just led me to realize, OK, there's something wrong here. It's not just the people. Right. You're just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic with the, the swapping of the red team for the blue team. It's not helpful until you fix what the root cause of it is, which is campaign finance reform. And why is campaign finance reform there? Why is the way we fund elections all messed up? Because it's our money, because how elections are financed. Right. It's so screwed up because those who have privileged access can control the system and pull the levers they need to to get the result they want. Mm. Well said. Let's start with just your view on markets right now. We can kind of launch off of that pad. Give us, take this any direction you want. How do you, how are you sizing this up right now? And then we'll go so, from there. Yeah. So um, let's go back. Let's look at, and I, and I apologize for having to circle back, but I think it need, it, I need to start here from, to understand my viewpoint. The long train of markets for the last several decades has been one where increased intervention is required and necessary to keep things afloat, right? To keep kicking the can down the road. And we're seeing this on a level where despite what fiscal authorities are doing, you know, the Congress, despite what monetary authorities are doing, they are unable to generate a sustained, productive market, a market that is stable. And in, in turn, what they're doing with the intervention, they're making it more fragile. So most Bitcoiners agree on all that. Now let's, let's pivot to where I think is the point of contention. Bitcoiners at the same time, a lot, a lot of, I think, mainstream Bitcoiners, they, are, they have this notion that the whole system is going to come crashing down someday, right? We've heard it for many years. And it's not just Bitcoiners. A lot of gold bugs sort of think this, to, this through as well. I think the far more probable scenario is that it's going to continue to have these moments of high volatility 
where the Fed and, and policymakers in general are trying to drain support from the system and they eventually relent and they pivot back. And it seems like every time we go through one of these episodes, folks lose their heads. They forget what happened last time. They forget the precedent that's been established. So like now we're in a period where we had sort of the sugar high coming out of the COVID bust where everybody said we're going into a depression. It was going to crash. We were going to, it was going to be the end of the world. I mean, people were so pessimistic on risk assets and we saw what everything did. The punch bowl is being pulled away. The sugar is being drained and depleted. Real incomes are falling given all the inflationary CPI pressures we're facing. And people think that the Federal Reserve is just going to turn a blind eye to all that and plunge us into chaos, which I think is totally wrong, right? That's the, that, to me, that's again, you are, you're falling victim to the same mistake you made last time, which is not recognizing that there are certain limits, there are certain thresholds that once they cross, they will step back in and not necessarily save the market, because I don't necessarily think the Fed does save the market, but they will come back in with full force and integrity to try and convince others that the market is fine, that everything's okay, and it's not all going to hell. When it is going to hell, despite whatever the hell they're doing, it's just, it's all a bunch of kabuki theater. It's all a bunch of psychological manipulation. And I think we're going for another round of that that's coming up very shortly because <laughs> things have deteriorated so much in the real economy uh, that, uh, you know, there, there's only so much more they can push it. I mean, with, with bond yields, where they're at right now, with the housing market, you know, seemingly slowing down, consumers tapped out, you know, the next round's coming soon. Yeah. So then the end game in your mind is that this, this, it seems like the frequency of these events is closing tighter and tighter and tighter. The last one being like 2008, then 2020, and now we're in 2022. And like you said, I think we all feel it right now. We all feel like we're moving towards the, another one of those breaks. Uh, I guess maybe if I was going to come at it from the other angle and, and agree with gold bugs is as this tightening keeps, you know, the, the uh, frequency keeps tightening up. Eventually, it seems like a loss of confidence is where that actually does break. I guess Correct. I'm wondering how how you think that works out. Yeah, so um, it's it is definitely ends with a lack lack of confidence. But before that, you have to have more and more diminishing returns, right? That's the economic principle you're looking at. There were projections when we did the COVID stimulus and the you know the different infrastructure pass, uh, bills passed by Congress that we were going to achieve three, four, five percent GDP growth through 2020, 2022, excuse me. Um, we didn't get anywhere near that. Like we're having this anemic growth. And Dr. Lacey Hunt, which if you guys don't follow, you should watch some of his podcasts. He talks about this a lot. There's something called the marginal revenue product of debt. And a very well-defined economic phenomenon is that as societies become over-indebted, they have to do more and more, and they get less and less economic input. The productivity that you get from additional debt spending has diminishing returns. And this is a very common concept. You, you, can't, you can't get yourself out of debt by spending more debt, right? That's not right. going to generate sustainable growth. But what it will do in the short run is it's going to give you the spurts. Mm. You see really rapid sort of you know, sugar highs. That's what we saw coming out of the COVID bust. I think we're going to see it again when they pivot invariably during this next tightening cycle that they're going to have to reverse course on. And to your point, I think the key thing is at certain point, which nobody knows when this is going to be, but at a certain point, no matter what the Congress or the Federal Reserve or other policymakers do, 
there, it's not going to be enough to keep the market from being jittery. And that's the kind of end result that I think will come. But guys, to say that, that we're here now, right. that this time yeah. is it, I think that's the fiction that you keep, you know, people keep making that mistake. And I think they're going to make it again. And it's going to, it's going to be costly. That's where I think some people confuse your viewpoint because you do, you do reach the same end game as a lot of, let's say your, your critics or people that disagree, but it's your short-term outlook. You know, one thing I think of is it's not apples to apples here, but I know that like during the great depression, there were, I think around six rallies between 15 and 50% in the stock market. That's just one example of like the volatility that ensues. You can get off sides if your time horizon's short and your expectations are definitive in one direction for, let's say, a single year. So what you're saying, tell me if if I have this sized up correctly. Your argument is that some of this stuff has already been priced in. I know you've, I've heard you kind of say that before, and it is likely that with them stepping back in, rescuing markets to some extent, let's say in 2022, if you're like short-term bearish right now, right, you could very well get caught off sides. And that's part of the reason I've heard you say like, you think we very well may see a Bitcoin high in 2022. Do I kind of have yeah. that sized up accurately? Yes, but there's one big piece of it that I think is, is critical. Um, our macroeconomic picture, right? The global economy is completely divorced from the equity market, in my view. Um, mm. When I say completely divorced, what I mean is that the stock market at this point is really decoupled from the fundamentals of a very over-indebted society that has a lot of different problems, both politically and economically. Um, yes, there is a lead lag effect. Yes, stocks can react when there's high volatility. But guys, in 2008, go back and look at some of the charts where the banking system was literally imploded. And in the middle of 2008, you had the S&P 4% off the highs. Mm. Okay. Wow. I mean, Interesting. Th- th- this, is, this is a consistent refrain, what we go through again and again, that for some reason, when stocks are selling off, people think, well, this must be some fundamental reflection of the economy. And the crazy thing for me is that going through 2020, where we had record high unemployment and we had all these, this government stimulus and we had, uh, you know, folks, uh, you know, reacting to the fundamentals yet being confused why are equity prices surging to new highs, they still don't get it. Like these things go in different, different directions and they're not correlated. If you want to look for a true picture of the fundamentals of global economy, look at the bond market, you know, the credit markets in general, that is the reflection of the true economy. Most of the appreciation in stocks are passive indexation. You know, people that are, as long as they have a job, those stocks Mm -hmm. are going to get bid up more and more. That's Mm -hmm. majority of the flows. Okay. Even in 2008. Okay. This is a bizarre statistic, but it's true. Um, I've I've heard it several different times from people. I've never done the actual cross-checking of it, but I, I believe the sources I've heard it from that there were very, there was like only a few weeks where there were actually negative outflows from some of the S&P 500 funds, the Fidelity, the Vanguard funds, um, very few weeks during 2008, right? Where, where stocks are crashing and cratering, there were not even sufficient outflows. During the uh, COVID bust, you had between five to 6% of the passive indexation sellers, net sellers, five to 6%. You think, you know, with the prices collapsing 30 to 40% on the S&P 500, that it was this mass of people dumping risk assets, tiny fractions, very small amounts of people are moving the market and and the reason I bring that up is because even in a situation like this, we've had a 25 basis point hike from the Federal Reserve 
And look what has happened to the bond market. Mm -hmm. Look at where yields have gone with a 25 BIP hike, right? They've skyrocketed over the last several weeks, particularly the 10 years since the beginning mm -hmm. of April, the yields have, have surged. To me, guys, that's really important because it shows you who's in control. Is it the Federal Reserve or is it the bond market saying, we believe the Fed's going to price a billion hikes in? And my question to that is, what happens if tomorrow they say, because of the weakening consumer demand, because consumer sentiments you know, in the toilet, housing is declining, what if maybe we put a pause this summer on hikes? What if we say, we've done a couple, we're going to reevaluate the fall? If they do that, I think you, the rocket ship sets sail. I mean, I, I, I think there's, the market will turn on a dime because at this point, with the over-indebtedness, expectations is everything. Setting expectations is the whole name of the Fed's game at this point. It's all psychological theater. So, I mean, the, just to, the, the, sim the simple signpost is them, <laughs> to even call it hawkish is kind of adorable, but them turning more dovish is for you like, all right, it's, it's game on. Like, yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and they don't even need to be more dovish, right? They like the way the, because of the, of everybody's trying to front run the fed. Okay. And what they're doing, all they really need to do is signal some willingness to be data dependent. This was the big phrase. So if you go back to 2018, when the market was tanking and the Bitcoin market, by the way, was tanking, um, Jerome Powell went out and he gave a press conference and he said, the runoff of the balance sheet is on autopilot, right? Autopilot. The market hated that. They absolutely hated the notion that he's not going to apply any sort of flexibility given changing information. And then when he pivoted in early January of 2019, he introduced this phrase, we're data dependent, right? We're going to reassess as things go. Mm. Minor communication variances like that can change this entire market structure because it's all about people trying to front run a Federal Reserve, which in my opinion, has a lot less influence than people think. What a flimsy bitch ass system. To zoom it's out, it's terrible. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, geez, Louise, it's so fragile. It, it is an incredibly fragile system, and uh, you know, unfortunately, with where Bitcoin's at and its adoption and maturity, it's so young that it's just it gets caught up in this huge yeah. whirlwind. Um, yeah. I posted this chart, uh, which I think is the correct way um, uh, to analyze Bitcoin, which is you take a look at Bitcoin's price and you compare it to the VIX, the volatility index. And it gives you a lot of more information, I think, in terms of assessing where Bitcoin's really at. You have to measure it against the volatility in the system. Bitcoin peaked in 2017 when the VIX, the volatility index for the S&P 500, made a new all-time low. That, that is not a coincidence. It was literally within a day or so of one another. It's because when there's high volatility in the system, Bitcoin tends to suffer. When there's low volatility, Bitcoin tends to do well. So you need to look for the VIX and sort of seeing where the Bitcoin's going to go in the future. We brought up 2008 already, so I thought maybe we would just go ahead and talk about this. What is the difference in your mind about the mechanics of fiscal and monetary policy in 2008 versus just recently in 2020? Well, so let's take each of those in turn. Number one, we're much more indebted since 2008. So a lot of people think um, that the Congress sort of uh, plays a backseat to the Federal Reserve. I disagree with that strongly. I think the name of the game with where interest rates are at the lower bound, much more emphasis should be placed on what the Congress is doing. Mm. The stimulus that was passed coming out of COVID was one of the major reasons why we were making highs in all of these different assets. You could have bought the most worthless stocks that had no fundamentals and they were surging to new all-time highs in 2020. Um, and Bitcoin benefited from a lot of stimulus cash being pushed out there in the system. Benefited um, from mine now, for sure. Yeah. So, so, so from our standpoint, like 
we're over indebted. Um, once we get that indebted as a country, bad things tend to happen. Um, but I think because of structural, um, because of structural considerations of how the dollar system is put in place, we still have artificial price support for our dollar, for our currency. And if anything, it can go on a little bit, a lot longer, actually, in terms of how much the Congress can spend outside of its means. Now, the Fed, okay, is an interesting story, because if you look at what the Fed has done, they keep having to reinvent the toolbox. They keep recognizing that the tools they have to support the system are inefficient. This is why you go from QE1 to QE2 to the reverse repo, the standing repo facility. You have all of these huge institutions from the Fed designed to try to generate inflation, which, by the way, for 10 years, they were never able to hit their inflation targets, despite huge amounts of bank reserve printing and QE. They could never get there, um, which we'll get back to, I'm sure, when we talk about inflation and what I, I think about with respect to inflation. But the key thing you should look at is the Fed is far less powerful than people make it out to be. The major authority of the Fed at this point is the political and psychological theater they use to convince market participants that the coast is clear. If they can convince you that printing a whole lot of bank reserves is making the system solvent, they hope that investors like the three of us and bigger players that control billions of dollars are going to plow, plow money into the system and keep a very fragile system in place. Tell me if you... so. This is this is several months ago, but you I forget it was maybe you and Gladstein on yeah. Twitter were dialoguing and then we got in touch with you and you sent us to watch some videos and stuff. And and, I, and through that, I really started thinking through some Lynn Alden pieces because you may be the same. We, we read everything she puts out. She's great. Uh, I actually pulled out of the treasure chest four pieces of hers before our conversation, just talking about QE money printing. She, she really likes to get into this nuance and define terms. So a lot of this is going to be Lynn Alden regurgitated. She basically has this in one of her pieces titled Banks, QE, and Money Printing. She basically draws this distinction between QE, like QE with, without debt monetization. That's just recapitalizing banks, right? That's not more money chasing fewer goods. Like that's not inherently inflationary. That is, that's you, could say anti you could say that's anti-deflationary. But that's like one of her points. And then her right. next point, so that's that's sort of a theme of let's say QE two thousand eight. You could sort of lump TARP in there. Let's yeah. let's move forward to twenty twenty. Very different scenario. Like banks are actually fairly well capitalized, which I think a lot of Bitcoiners don't like to admit. But now you have fiscal spending sort of enabled by reserve creation or quantitative easing. And that is, in her view, that is direct money insertion. I think it's like, although it's a shortcut, you can say money printing. Do you agree with her thesis on that, about drawing that distinction and the difference between those two periods of time? I agree with it. But um, again, I think the way it's been, you just framed it is you framed it in the context of the Fed when I think the emphasis should be on mm. the Congress. Okay. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. who spent the money? Right. Like who is, who is doing, I know the Fed is doing the monetization. It's right? a treasury who cut is actually checks. making. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So the, that's the, that's the big distinction from Japan, right? Japan has done way more QE on a relative basis than the United States, and they could never generate the type of inflation that we're seeing. Right. And because they're not doing the fiscal spending to accompany it. So I, I, I completely agree with the idea that fiscal spending by our elected representatives causes inflation, at least commodity inflation in the short run. But yeah. the key thing you got to remember is that the Congress, when it borrows money by you know effectively issuing treasuries, they owe that money back. 
Okay. And that requires interest rates to stay low. Druckenmiller mm-hmm. talks about this a lot. If interest yep. rates go up enough that now you're consuming a third to a fourth of the national budget just to pay interest. Right. And that is deflationary, right? It's tying up capital that would otherwise go into the economy. Mm. So this is, again, back to what I was talking about earlier, the marginal revenue product of debt as you spend more debt becomes lower and lower. You're not able to generate the kind of sustained inflation you would think would come naturally. It's kind of counterintuitive, but the notion that just doing QE, which we saw in QE1, QE2, QE3 since the 2008 crisis, that that's going to generate inflation, the data didn't show it. And by the way, what we saw numerous times throughout QE1, QE2, and QE3 was that once the yields actually moved in the opposite direction on bonds when they stopped and started QE. I mean, this is kind of, you can see this on a chart. And I think that's what you were referring to when I was going back and forth with Gladstein. He was trying to make the argument that, well, QE is designed to suppress rates. Well, actually, during periods when uh, you, know, uh, you instituted QE, you saw the opposite occur with rates. And you can go see this on a chart. It's not my opinion. It's the data. What, we move the, if the, sorry, go ahead. Um, I was just going to ask, do you, do you understand them? I'm just, I'm curious because I don't understand the mechanics behind that. Why would that be? Why would that be? Why would they be moving in opposite in lockstep? It just doesn't intuitively make sense. Yeah. Um, well, so QE is tying up collateral into the banking system. That's the key thing. So you have to go back very quickly, and I don't want to get too wonky on this, but if you go into the, the idea of a bank reserve, right? You go into a bank, you give them your cash. Most people think that the cash just sits there. But from a debt standpoint, from a balance sheet standpoint, they take the cash and they transform a liability to you, which is if you walk in the door and you want your cash, we have to pay it out. They transform that liability into an asset. They change your cash into an asset. Uh, which is treasuries, right? Short-term right. treasuries mostly. And then- Okay, so they're point, bidding the treasuries then. Oh, okay, now that makes correct. sense to me. But then but then there's another step, right? So the bank has the treasury. They've converted your cash to a treasury. And then the Fed comes in and gobbles up that treasury. What do they give the bank? They give the bank cash, right? What do you think the bank does with that they cash? They go do it again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're literally, you're not, there's no net gain. And- the bigger thing that drives inflation, in my view, is always the creation of credit. And what we've seen since 2008, since the global financial crisis, is that banks are not lending as, as, as the same clip that they used to rent. There used to be a trend where they were lending at very high rates, and we've seen it completely tail off. There's a lot of reasons for that, one of it, which is the poor risk premium in the banking system um, for new credit issuance. You have a dynamic where if you are Apple or Tesla or Uber, you can get as much capital as you need. But if you're a mom and pop and you don't have good credit, it's much harder for you to get access to capital. And we've seen this repeatedly, which to me, that is evidence. That's exhibit A for why there's there's actually a dollar shortage in the system. That combined with what we're seeing with you know the, the DXY and all the arguments that Santiago Capital makes uh, regarding the dollar milkshake theory, there's, there's actually too few dollars in the system given how it's constituted. Now, I would guess... On the long-term time horizon, you so you would agree with the statement that QE historically is one could say, like Lynn said, anti-deflationary, right? Okay, and then I am guessing another is you. <laughs> I presume you think that long-term the Fed's balance sheet is going up significantly. Yes yeah. or no? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's no doubt about it. It, it has to go up. It has to go up because there's no other buyer of last resort for some of these right. things. But Again, you have to look at, can that alone, can the expansion of the balance sheet 
drive inflation over the long run. And that's where I take issue with, I think, the conventional wisdom, because I don't think it can. I think their, their tools to, of influencing the global credit markets are increasingly becoming ineffective. And most people think, well, we're on the verge of hyperinflation. It's all going to hell. Actually, the opposite is true. I think you're in a situation where the higher prices are causing demand destruction. And if you get to a point where consumers start being unable to foot the bill for basic staples and other things, yeah, they're going to come back down. And to me, what do you think is going to be the result of that point? More and more stimulus trying to keep the ship afloat. I think about, I listened to you, Bitcoin Tina. You had Bitcoin Tina and American Hoddle on recently. And Tina, let me find it, wrote it down here somewhere. He basically said, like, he, he drew this analogy of like two kids playing catch near a glass house and saying, you know, if they get, if they get too cute with these rate hikes and this thing starts to, we get a real live credit crunch and this thing really starts to wind downhill and deleverage, like it could get gnarly short term. And then the way that they're going to have to step in and rescue it is going to blow minds, like with the, the amount that they're going to have to step in with. You kind of agree with where he's going with that, that like if they, if they play hardball one, one throw too long, it could break the window and then all hell could break loose or, or how fragile do you think we are right now? So I, I love Bitcoin, Tina. I, he's a very good friend. I talk to him every day. Uh, I'll just start by saying that. Him and I go back and forth be, and, and we have great discussions and debates about this because to me, he looks at everything through the idea of the Fed is in complete control. And I look at it from the standpoint as the Fed can really only cause problems for markets based on its signaling, based on its messaging. And that's the big thing. You, you just pointed out, look at this discussion right now, guys. They hiked 25 bips and we have a 10-year that's rapidly approaching 3%. Right, you have a two-year that's around two point four, two point five percent. Who caused the ten-year and the two-year to move where it's at? You know, for Bitcoiners yeah. who think that you know they think everything uh, they believe in decentralization, isn't it far more probable the bond market itself, the bond traders, are trading off expectations that the Fed is going to hike a billion times and they push yields to where they're at right now? They've caused the massive sell-off in bonds, or do you think it's the Fed that's done this? I think that the, they've they've completely. Gone, gotten to a position where you have this reflexive loop where the bond market tries to influence the Fed and they try to get in front of the Fed. Okay. And then the Fed, you ever hear the phrase behind the curve? The Fed, the, the Fed will perpetually be, on, be behind the curve for the rest of our lifetime because of where they're at with the levels of debt. They're never going to be able to get to a position where they're in control. All they can really do is try to manage expectations of the bond market. The Fed, I always say this, I tweet this out probably feel like once a week. The bond market tells the Fed what to do, not the Fed telling the bond market to do. Mm. And it's a fundamental shift between high, how I think about it and I think a lot of other Bitcoiners do because the bond market, which is massive and it's not controlled by any central entity, it is decentralized. It is literally making moves based on what it thinks the Fed is going to do. That's all it is. It's not actually what the Fed is doing. That's psychological warfare, right? Psychological economic warfare, which is effectively what's going on right now. Yeah. It's almost like uh, this uh, Fed has tamed a wild Mustang and they're trying to hold on, you know, and this Mustang is going to buck them off and they've got no true control over it besides trying to give it some direction. And hopefully this thing doesn't get out of the out of the corral on them, you know. 
Key word there, trying to control, right? They're attempting to control. Maybe we need four new vehicles. Maybe we need new dollar swap lines to get the DXY back down. I mean, they will continue to reinvent new apparatuses, new features, new uh, vehicles to try to influence this market. By the way, what, what I think with this ends and where I completely agree with Bitcoiners is I think eventually you see com the complete merger between Treasury and Fed. That's mm. where this is going. Yeah. yeah and that's effectively style. UBI. This is the yeah. key point. I, this is keep going on this because I no, think no, this I, is I, the I, crux of the biscuit here of your. Yeah, thesis. no, that, that that's it. You already saw them working in with uh, you know uh, unprecedented sort of uh, working in tandem through through COVID. I think it will come again. You've got you know Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary. What was her whole job? I mean, that's not a coincidence, guys. They knew that to get us out of this funk, to have any shot at a longer term, uh, you know non-recession. I won't even say it's a growth period. It's a non-recession. They're trying to hold everything together. They're going to need these two en entities to work in tandem together. And that's only going to increase. Now, you know, can that go on another five years? Anyone's guess. I, I don't see why not. I mean, I, I think you have a lot of tools left in their toolbox to try to manipulate the market into doing what they want. And maybe they'll be successful. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are and what Kathy Wood said. At, uh, in, at the conference at Bitcoin 2022, she was talking about how Bitcoin could perform in an inflationary environment, which I think is obvious to most people. You know, they understand the scarcity. And as long as people are searching for uh, scarce assets, its price should theoretically rise in an inflationary environment. But she said, and she reasoned that it would also flourish in a deflationary environment. And the, the reasoning she used for that is that there's no counterparty risk in Bitcoin. How do you do you agree with that statement? How do you how do you walk through that in your mind? Do you, how do you think Bitcoin yeah. performs in a deflationary time frame? For me, I look at where Bitcoin is in its evolutionary trek, okay? So, I think one of the biggest mistakes people make about Bitcoin is they analyze it as as if it's a static thing when it's really a living, breathing, dynamic entity. Okay? It's adapting. It's growing in real time. Look at Lightning. I mean, this stuff is alive, guys. Like it, it, yeah. to the extent a, a network can be alive, Bitcoin is alive. And I think the key thing about it for how is Bitcoin going to perform in a deflationary spiral or how is, how is it going to perform in hyperinflation? Tell me where Bitcoin is on its evolution. You know, is Bitcoin mm. at a $10 trillion market cap and do we have, you know, 20% of the population using it? If, if that's the case, I can tell you it's going to perform a lot differently than if it's this year we go into severe deflation or severe right. hyperinflation. Um, you know, you have, you have to recognize not what Bitcoin is today, but what it can be four or five years from now and realize that Bitcoin is perfectly suited given its construction to adapt to all these things because of its issues with, you know, being unconfiscatable because of its issues with being, you know, uh, censorship resistant, it can adapt. It's built literally to last. It's built to withstand, you know, the, the concept, which, I know he's not favorite, uh, you know, favorite in Bitcoin circles, but Taleb's concept of being anti-fragile. Bitcoin is the purest example of anything I've ever seen that is anti-fragile because it is uniquely, it has an ability to prosper no matter what is coming at it. Fucking honey badger. Yeah. I love that take. It, it is. It, it absolutely is. Um, wait, before we move on to the next subject, back to that conversation with Tina and American Hoddle. Yeah. You interacted with us on Twitter. We were saying, like, this may sound hubristic, but like, I think American Hoddle was born to come on the Blue Collar Bitcoin podcast. Yeah. So we may They'd need to, to leverage you, Joe. Although, you know, Josh, it makes me think like 
Hoddle, American Hoddle is a bit of like a mythical Bitcoin creature. I know. And you don't want, it's like maybe, you don't want to meet him. You don't want to meet your yeah, heroes. Maybe you the know? fact that we want him on the show, Joe, means like we're not ready. You know, like the old <laughs> no. adage, like when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Like, Josh, maybe we're just not ready for American Hoddle. More meditation. You, uh, I, I try to get I try to get Hoddle on our podcast, and I want to get him on yours just because uh, the people need to hear from him. Um, I talk to him all the, all, t- all the time on Clubhouse, and um, you know he, he's one of the main reasons I still go on Clubhouse because he's, he's great. His insights are awesome, and he gets this. He he does not get into the weeds. We we, we laugh a lot because. You know, I'm going into the intricacies of the euro dollar futures market and the, the shape of the yield curve and all these things. Hoddle just gets it. He realizes that this system's broken and the end result is Bitcoin. And he can intuitively explain that. We talk a lot about like metaphorical truth versus yes. realistic truth. Yes. I don't know if you've heard this, but you know, this. I talk about yeah. how like, you know, I, you know, the system's broken and the Fed is powerless. But, you know, he always pushes back and says, yes, but the metaphorical truth of money printing go burr is powerful. The message it's directionally is correct for somebody yeah. that if you're if you're latched on to and tell me if you disagree, but like I think I think this is something that you guys explored a little bit in that episode I mentioned. Like if that's what you latch on to and that's that's what makes sense to you, that that directionally correct shortcut meme will enable you to make hopefully a sound Bitcoin decision, assuming you have the discipline to hold on to it. Hundred percent. I completely agree, and and you guys do this. You know, I'm sure with the, the folks you're talking to, blue collar workers and people, and I, I do run into the same. I can't get into the intricacies of all this stuff with, yeah. you know, people in a five minute conversation. You have to get to the nuts and bolts that you know the system's broken and it requires a ton more intervention. So yeah, you can expect more money printer go burr. You can expect weird things to happen to your money. So you better have it in something hard. So what are your inflation expectations for the rest of the year? Yeah. So I think inflation is going to remain elevated. Um, I think we're going to be at a point where the the rate of change starts to peak. Not to say like, you know, inflation it's not going to come away, down, right? but it'll, it'll it'll maybe stay static for the rest of the year. Yeah. So yeah. it peels off and uh, you've seen some signs of that, some some cracks right now in some of the commodity markets that are just starting to roll over. Um, you know, with if I think if you that's part of my my thesis about Bitcoin market, you know, starting to go on a run here, because if we can get some of the CPI numbers to come down, maybe instead of a, you know, 8.2 or 7.9% CPI print, we can get it back down to six or 5.9, somewhere in that range. Um, I think people are going to say, okay, the worst is behind us. We've gotten through some of these commodity shortages. The, the war in Ukraine is, uh, you know, winding down, something like that. You get a lot, you can see sort of the headlines and you can see the pivot coming. Where things okay, it's summertime. People are you know feeling better. They're feeling more comfortable. It's not as dreary. Golf I think you, you'll get some, yeah, yeah. I think you'll get COVID's over, right? Like yeah. you get some of this sort of tailwind that the worst is behind us. Yeah, we really um, got robbed of the COVID's over. over thing with this whole Ukraine war. You know, we were supposed to enjoy this, not go into another crisis. Right. Yeah. No. It, unfortunately, it's been a mess, and uh, I think it's gone on a lot longer. Um, I can tell you, I, I didn't expect the war back in January, uh, I, and I think it's been a drag on markets. I think yeah. it's been much more of a drag on markets than the CPI print. Um, before we get, we've talked some about the bond markets, but uh, let's talk yield curve, mm-hmm. uh, inversion, your take on, is it inverted? Uh, if so, why does that matter? And if you don't mind, let's start pretty basic for someone that doesn't even know <laughs> what a yield curve is. Like, let's, we don't have to spend forever on this, but 
just yeah, high it's, level it's, bond markets yield curve. I, I love the um, the quote from the big short, which I don't know if you guys have seen the, the Michael Lewis big yeah. short movie where they talk about how people in finance and economics and banking, uh, they like to make everything sound uh, really complicated so that you feel like you're stupid, right? That, that's basically what I think about with the yield curve. I mean, all it is, guys, and anybody who's listening, it's not some magic science. Uh, you know, it's not some amazing, you know, uh, crystal ball. All it is, is that with a bond market, a healthy economy, the curve should be sloping higher, right? If you have short-term duration, short-term maturity, that should the yield for that product, a two-year or three-month, whatever short-term duration, that yield should not be as high as the yield on a 10-year or 20-year bond, right? And in a healthy economy, you should see this curve that slopes like this, beautiful sloping upward. Um, the issue becomes because of uncertainty, because of Fed policy, because of distortions in the credit market, you can actually see them invert, which means that the short-term duration is actually yielding more than the long-term duration. And that makes no sense, right? Why with the increased risk of a longer dated product, would that be yielding less than the short you know, duration? Yeah. Um, that, that's basically it in a nutshell. Right. And it's been a reliable indicator uh, for recessions in the past. Um, now, the one other part of it that I think is underreported is that aside from it being a reliable probabilistic indicator saying like every time it's inverted, there's been a recession, it actually causes real havoc in the credit market because there are businesses effectively that will borrow at the at, at different ends, they'll borrow the short end and long end, they'll, they'll try to capitalize on the spread, banks make money on the spread between the different durations, and it tightens the cost of capital. So that's really an underreported. Actually, uh, has a, a direct effect in making the credit markets more unstable. Um, a yield curve inversion. Now, what we saw recently is we saw um, a, an inversion with most reliable or one of the most reliable um, comparisons, the two and the ten. You saw that invert briefly. You know, uh, I think it was like a week, week and a half ago, um, maybe two weeks ago, and now it's back off to steepening. Right, the spread is is being blown out. Basically, since the beginning of April. What you've seen is the 10-year and long-end maturities, the yields on those products have gone higher, whereas the two-year and shorter durations have sort of stayed flat. They've hovered around 2, 2.5. That's actually good, right? You want the long-end to continue, yields to continue to go up. It wreaks havoc in the, uh, you know, the real estate market. If you look at like where 30-year mortgages, um, I checked it today, it's like, you know, 6%. That is really going to be a drag on the real estate market moving forward. But- um, you want to see what we're effectively seeing, which is a steepening curve. It makes no sense intuitively for any any person, even a lay person, to say, why would I lend my money at 2 to 3% over a 20 or 30-year period when inflation is at 8% at minimum? Who is it just institutional momentum that is causing this? Like people do it because they do it, and there's not there's no other place to park my money. Is that is that your read on why people would even be purchasing these things at this point, especially, especially the longer term ones? So the majority of the purchases of bonds come from two sources. Number one, fixed income investors that have to buy it because they still believe in the 60-40 portfolio. And then institutions, which going back to what I talked about earlier, they're legally mandated to convert cash into collateral. Um, as much as we like to think that we live in a credit-based system, we really live in a collateral-based system. 
because you cannot create credit without underlying collateral. And many institutions, it's breaches of, of their fiduciary duty to hold pure cash, large amounts of cash. Even gotcha. if you can get a tiny amount of yield, it's a no-brainer, right? Your, your, your duty would be, okay, I'm going to go after that yield. I'm going to get that rather than hold a bunch of cash, which is you know burning. So even though you can't capture anything to offset the you know eight percent CPI prints, you're going to still clamor towards that that yield. And in our system, right, we are not as far along on this process as every other country out there. Um, almost every other country out there, from Japan to the EU, they they're all you know their yields are negative or very low. Yes, they've all seen a rise, but on a relative basis. The U.S. 10-year is still yielding higher than most of these other products, which is significant, right? That's going to tell you if you're going to park money somewhere, you're going to park it there, right? That's the, the preferred collateral for the world. The U.S. 10-year is the most important financial instrument in the world. And until, by the way, this is why right now, if you're looking for, if you're listening to this and say, I don't care about any of this crap, I just want to know what it has to do with Bitcoin. Right now, Bitcoin is not going to get moving and not going to enter a bull market until we can get the 10-year yields to fall. Now, Here's the problem. Once the 10-year yields start to fall, to me, that means we've got a narrow runway before I'm going to be turning pretty pretty darn bullish, bearish, excuse me, because I think that the yields falling tends to be a very negative economic indicator leading out 6 to 12 months. Interesting. So the what, what let's get back to Bitcoin price to Yeah, we got to wake people whistle, up. Wet some whistles here. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, so basically, no, no this you, is, this is you. awesome. This is a, is exactly what we wanted to accomplish today these topics so basically this is the the joe analysis we're gonna see a reversal we're gonna see let's 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 just talk bitcoin for simplicity's sake we're gonna see an all-time high but then like broad broad based we're still in ugly town and we have a momentary reversal and then we're back down to the doldrums like is that kind of your your take on the next six to 18 months yeah, I think that's a pretty good assessment. So let's go with the thing that nobody's talking about, or at least few people are talking about in Bitcoin. We made a low at the end of January, January 24th, 2022. Unlike the equity market, we did not break a new low at any point during February, mm. March, or in April. We're still not having a new low. There are tweets out there by people, uh, one of which my buddy, Dr. Jeff Ross, he said, I would be shocked if Bitcoin doesn't make a new low in March or in April. Well, it hasn't. It's continued to make higher lows, including the most recent, you know, pullback a few days ago down to 39, 38K. You look at the chart. We've got a higher low, higher low, higher low. That's telling you something, guys. So if you're in the Bitcoin market right now, don't you're I think there's a lot of disbelief out there. They think, oh, well, it's all just going to roll over one of these days. It's processed a ton of bad information. It's processed a <laughs> yeah. 10 year nearing 3%. It's processed a DXY, a dollar index at 100 now. It's processed a war. It's processed all these sort of negative headlines, this you know constant barrage of negativity. And we're still not even near the bottom around 33K, which we saw on January 24th. That's, you know, for people that believe in markets, that's telling you something. It tells you there's been a bid there. We've effectively sat in the same range, realistically, since basically the first quarter of 2021. And what we need to do to go higher is very simple. And don't I think people get too fixated on the time. I'm looking at things beyond the time, really. I'm looking at what is coming next, what's next down the pipeline. I think what you do see is you see some of the inflationary pressures ease off. You see the Fed potentially say, we're, we're, we're seeing some cracks in the real estate market and consumer demand. We need to, in an election year, by the way, an election year, we need to right. sort of pump the brakes on some of this negative messaging. 
And you can kind of see the pathway forward where we say, okay, once the equity market's back near an all-time high, Bitcoin's where you want to be in a bull market. Let's get into the you know risk on trade again, which is where you'll see a ton of capital flow back into Bitcoin. And you're going to go, I think, uh, to potentially a new all-time high. Now, is that 100K? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not calling that. But I think you can easily see the groundwork being laid for a very solid bull run. And, and that's my thesis. How do you think about the four-year cycle at this point? It doesn't seem like we've kind of stuck to that in the last few years. Um, it, it would have made sense if we would have followed and copied 2017 that we would have seen this high, you know, in December, January, uh, November of last year. And we should have definitely watched this thing deflate a lot further than where it is at the moment, especially considering all the bad news that you just mentioned. Do you think yeah. that maybe we're breaking into something new here or do you think we're still massively influenced by this happening? I think that, uh, you know, and again, this is one where I'm, I'm kind of in the minority. So love it. don't shoot, shoot me on this Keep one, the but. minority messaging coming. I love it. <laughs> I, I never really believed in the four. I never really believed in the four year narrative. Um, I, I think it's kind of a it's one of those things we told ourselves early on mm. in Bitcoin that kind of made sense. We tended to see a little price movement and at a certain point it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, I do think that the happening is incredibly important for Bitcoin's long-term price appreciation. And I'm not going to ever discount that. I mean, the actual reduction in new Bitcoin mined is meaningful. It has huge implications for the mining market. Um, but the notion that to me, like I, I almost think it's kind of, it, it it's, does a disservice to Bitcoin. The notion that we can only have a bull market every four years when there's a happening. I mean, yeah. come on, guys. I expect a perpetual bull market once a few things get in, into place. I mean, you, you're going to see this price absolutely rip. I believe we will come in, in, in the not too distant future. And for me, that's, you know, five to 10 years. You're going to get uh, to a position where it's going to be very difficult to get large quantities of Bitcoin. Just it's going to be really hard to get huge Bitcoin blocks in, in mass. You're going to have to be fighting over, you know, a few coins here and there on public exchanges. Um, there's always going to be some, but I, I think that's coming. And to me, you know, the notion that you're going to, you're going to, you're going to limit Bitcoin's potential by an artificial four year period, I think just tells you you're not understanding what this asset represents. I completely agree with what you just said a second ago, Joe, like simplistic zoom out statement here, but we talk about this all the time. Like mankind has not processed the implications of immutable, totally fixed, inelastic supply. I mean, when this thing, when this thing, uh, when we move to the right and up on this adoption curve, there is not going to be enough Bitcoin. Quite literally, people really don't understand how small of a number twenty-one million is either, especially in the context of hearing about trillions and hundreds of trillions in the bond market and all that. Twenty-one million coins is incredibly scarce incredibly yeah. scarce well, that that and that and the fact that a, a central bank um you know that decides they're going to accumulate even the smallest amount of bitcoin the ripple that will send through the entire market mm. you know a, a, just a tiny and, and again nation states are one thing but central banks are a whole nother i mean when central banks accumulate things um it 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 it, the shock and awe that comes with that is uh unparalleled right because they they literally have the ability to generate you know ones and zeros to buy infinite amounts of Bitcoin that they, you know, they can literally, how many, how many ones and zeros can they type on their keyboard? That's a, effectively how much Bitcoin they can buy. That changes the game entirely. Sure does. Yeah. If you were going to take a wild guess, what do you think it is time frame wise before in a real central bank, somebody in a, 
first world country starts taking that serious? The first world will be the last. Um, I think you go through a whole string of, you know, smaller uh, countries, central banks, uh, particularly countries that are really struggling with currency devaluations, which I think comes. Um, to me, I think that if you're looking at the trend we're facing right here, we are sitting in a path where, again, this goes out to the six to 18 month question you had. I think that if we get a run here, it, I, I keep calling it, it'll be a sucker's rally. I think it'll be one last hurrah in a lot of these markets. And I think at that point, you're going to have more and more signs of deterioration in the fundamentals because there's not the accompanying fiscal stimulus, which is going to you know, potentially have a reversal, a bear market. You're going to have a recession. You're going to have more printing. And to me, like what I, I'm looking for to really be the, the, the crossing the chasm type event is going to be the introduction of UBI on a, on a broad scale. So mm -hmm. I think UBI being introduced in, in major Western countries, which there already are signs of it. I mean, we effectively have UBI if you have student loans in this country yeah. for the last two years. Um, those sort of massive programs, that's literally the gasoline on the fire that I think puts central banks to realize we need something hard that we can transmit instantly globally in something like Bitcoin. Just to, just to shore it up a in some way, shape or form is what you're saying. They're just going to be yeah. grasping for anything to batten down the hatches. It'll be first introduced as a hedge, right? This is a huge market. A lot of people, regular people are buying it. So we have to have a position and it will be very small, right? Like you kind of see this with companies already that some of them, you know, say, well, we're just going to put a little bit of cash towards it. Um, increasingly, it's kind of like the old Satoshi adage, right? Like maybe it makes sense to get some in case it ca catches on. Mm -hmm. Central banks <laughs> will make that calculus. And that's part of the game theory of Bitcoin. And uh, maybe, maybe it's, I mean, if you had a gun to my head, I would not be shocked at all if it happens within three years. Yeah, I mean, they, I, I think to, to bust other shallow memes, the, the narrative that these people are idiots is just adorable. I mean, they're not. These are hyper-intelligent, well-researched, unlimited resourced individuals. that They understand what's going on. So like to resonate with what you're saying, they understand what they're up to. They are gaming out scenarios of positive end game, negative end game, at least from their vantage point. And yeah, I think you're naive to think they're not going to be hedging some of their risk as they increase money supply significantly. And there's this other thing over here that's gaining tremendous momentum. Yeah, that's the impetus for them to say, eh, let's just in case, let's stack a little bit of this in the off chance that this turns on us. Yeah, guys, I like to think of it this way. Um, imagine for a second you're at the Federal Reserve or you're at major banking institutions. Um, you have to walk a fine line. Because if you give anything like Bitcoin too much credence, mm -hmm. it can literally, you know, be like an asteroid to the dinosaurs, right? Yep. So you have to, you have to sort of, you, you can't, you can't telegraph, even if you understand it, if you were in that position, the amount of instability you would create if you were the Federal Reserve and said, oh, we're buying Bitcoin right now, <laughs> yeah. um, it, it would be catastrophic. It would throw the entire system, uh, you know. Were you, were you <laughs> shocked to see what Janet Yellen had to say last week or was it the week before about Bitcoin, just even mentioning it and saying the word Satoshi? <laughs> did you see this? I, I did see it. Um, I, you know, to me, I think it, you have to be really naive to not think that they're considering all this. Hmm. I think that many of them um, take it for, they, they underestimate it. They hope it goes away. They, they secretly, it's like one of those things where like the gold bugs secretly hope Bitcoin goes away, I think. 
Um, I think that uh, there's a lot of wishful thinking on their part that it will just end one day and just come to you know a quick halt. It's not going to happen. But if you had a gun to them, their heads, they would all tell you that they think this is serious. This is going to undermine countries. I mean, Hillary Clinton said this openly at a forum, I think last year, she said, you know, she said cryptocurrencies, but she said cryptocurrencies have the potential potential to undermine governments. They're in, in closed door under with, you know, behind closed doors at cocktail parties where, you know, the general public's not let in. They all realize that this is presents a systemic threat and their hope is that they can kick the can down the road, which by the way, that's their hope for their entire policy, right? There is no solution to the debt problem. There's no solution to the, the huge Fed balance sheet. They can't unwind this. It's not a situation where they can engineer a soft landing. All they can do is prolong the inevitable. And to me, I think they can prolong it a very long time, but I think that they know how it ends. They know how it ends, which is every time you have uh, a, a currency that's not backed by anything, it ultimately gives way to something that's hard, a hard asset. Yeah. What do you think about the idea that governments, central banks could maybe make sweetheart deals with miners to lift some coins off their hands kind of out of the market in order to keep the price from having a significant movement in, in the spot arena, at least? You think yeah, that's something think that, that they're sense. mulling around with? I don't think it makes any sense. I mean, let, let's just walk through this structurally. And, and again, I was in a room tonight with Lawrence Lepard on Spaces where they were making the argument about the gold price was being suppressed and all this BS, which I, I, I hate these arguments. And I hope Bitcoiners never start buying into them in mass. Because think about this, just practically. You buy a bunch of Bitcoin, right, from miners, and you're holding down the price. Well, if because if demand is there from the private sector, from the retail those coins are going to get lifted. Joe Carlosari will buy those coins and I will put them in deep cold storage and keep them there as long as they need to be until the market is rational, like Preston Prish says, right? Like, <laughs> the, I, I don't understand what people think. Do you think that if you buy a bunch of Bitcoin from miners uh, and you're trying to suppress the price, that you're not going to get completely eaten alive by buy walls from people like Michael Saylor and the next 10 Michael Saylor that are coming after him, which are coming, guys, to Rest assured, they'll be here. It's just going to take longer than people think. Um, but it, it doesn't make any sense, practically. You cannot pin down an asset like Bitcoin if there is demand sufficient to take away those coins. That's it's all you need. It's a slippery hog, Joe. Yeah. This it, it, you can't it, get your hands around this thing. I, I, don't, I don't know what the, the argument, when you really boil it down, does not make sense. Even the paper products argument. Because if you're trying to suppress the Bitcoin through these paper products, through the futures market, right? Unless you're going to get lit up and lose your entire, you know, lose your shirt, lose your your, your firm in trying to put on these trades, uh, you have to go into the spot market to hedge. You have to own Bitcoin if you're selling huge amounts of the paper contracts. So this this is again, this is a narrative people tell because they're frustrated. We're not at 100k. I get it. I wish we were at 100k too, guys. But there's nothing wrong with Bitcoin. It's fine. It just takes a lot longer. And I can guarantee you that once we get into a position where policymakers are going to have to do more stimulus, Bitcoin's going to absolutely rip. I mean, that, that's, that is the ultimate hack. The Bitcoin is designed to benefit from the absolute necessary intervention by policymakers into the system that we know is going to keep coming. So for me, like as a Bitcoiner, I want UBI. I want all this intervention. I wish that the Fed would do 18 times more QE every single day. <laughs> I wish that we'd get checks as far as the eye can see. 
That's I'm I think that's this, the best way to engineer this transition to Bitcoin. Print, print, print. Do whatever you need to do. Yeah, I love it. Let's flip over to Bitcoin and energy. Uh, how significant do you think the Exxon news was? Where do you sort of see this going? Even with you know miners versus energy producers, high level Bitcoin energy thoughts. Um, my thoughts are it's positive. It's constructive. I don't think it's. Um, I think it's it's consistent with some of the things I've seen just sort of privately in my line of work representing some of the miners. I mean, there's there's a tremendous amount of deals that are being cut with energy companies that maybe not as big as ExxonMobil, um, but at the smaller level, regional level, um, you know, this has been coming for months and months. I wish it was Exxon mining it directly. And to me, a game changing moment in the Bitcoin energy space is when a lot of these miners get absorbed by big energy companies. Okay, I think it's a no brainer that that's coming. Um, I think if you're a miner right now, you should be positioning yourself to get acquired by a major energy supplier in the next five years. So you um, think these publicly traded miners are going to get acquired by major energy producers? Why wouldn't they? Yeah. What, com what competitive advantage you have? The competitive advantage you have with mining is not necessarily the equipment, unless you're going to be a chip manufacturer, which by the way, if you know, that's what we need domestically. We need a new chip manufacturer to compete with Bitmain. That's the next step, which yeah, I, think I, Intel's I, been I know making some noise. folks that are true. Yeah, I know some folks that are trying to do that, and I really hope it happens because we need to get uh, we need to get better chips and, and make it domestically. But if you're a Bitcoin miner, you really don't have any competitive advantage over the energy companies. The energy companies already have the mineral rights, and they can do this, and they can bring you in in uh, you know in house. Why wouldn't they? There's it makes no no purpose. So there's, it makes no reason. Uh, there's no reason not to do that. Um, you know, I look at it like right now. Uh, energy Bitcoin mining space is kind of like uh, you know blockbuster video. I think it's going to be completely rewritten, redone. You're going to have uh, effectively it all brought in house like streaming services. And by the way, the streaming services realize like Netflix did and other providers like we can just make our own content. We don't even need to buy the other videos. We can just do it all in one package. Mm. That's where mining's going. It's all going under the roof of the energy providers. Yeah. This is a very obvious comment for the three of us, but for some people listening, maybe not aware. Bitcoin mining is, you know, matches energy with a, it's a perfect match for consolidating and, you know, giving the this whole structure of the energy itself a good backbone in order to drink up a lot of that supply, the excess supply they might be wasting. I think I read a statistic that 17% of energy in the world is, is wasted because it's just not used before. I mean, it can't be stored anywhere. The electricity, once it's sent out, it's gone. So that's 17% of the world's energy that could be put to productive use with Bitcoin stored in a digital format. You know, it's uh, it's a perfect match for energy companies to acquire Bitcoin miners in the long term or short term. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, who knows how it's going to. Uh, I know you guys are both uh, Jeff Booth fans, um, which I love his work. And, and I think that if you follow his work to its logical conclusion, it goes back to what we've been saying on this whole podcast, which is how there's a need for constantly more uh, intervention to push back against the deflationary forces that are in play. But one of the things that I think Jeff Booth points out in his book that's not reported enough on or considered is he talks a lot about um, solar energy. And while I'm a believer in the fossil, flu fossil fuels for the long term, like I think for the next 10 years, we're still going to be largely dependent on fossil fuels. I do think it's interesting, and he seems to know way more about this than me, which always is something I, I've been meaning to look up. But he's really bullish on solar and the ability for people to, you know, power their own homes, and uh, you know, the the uh, increased ability for those to be effective to have meaningful contributions to the power grid. 
I'm really interested to see how that affects Bitcoin mining. You know, if you've got solar energy across the, the globe, uh, you know, your hash rate's going to rip, right? Who wouldn't have uh, as many ASIC miners as they could right. possibly get their hands on? Uh, I could, I always think, guys, by the way, I, I've been mining just, you know, out of my house since basically 2018. And uh, I think it's badass. Oh, yeah, I love it. Um, But what's amazing about it is that I have a machine. I have S9s that are to this day still profitable, right? These things are five, six, seven years old. Yeah, they they still make money with residential power rates in Illinois, which is mind blowing to me that I still make money. Yeah, I, I mean, I picked them up for a song during the bear market in 2018. And it's incredible because when you think about most technology, uh, and this just shows you the power of Bitcoin. Most technology, if you get a flat screen TV, two years, three years, it's outdated. Mm-hmm. Right? It's it's junk. You could, it's not even worth you know a couple hundred bucks with the way new screens come out and new tech, new processors are created. But the fact that I can be profitable with like a six or seven year old machine on residential power rates blows my mind. That just tells you the efficiencies that are built into the Bitcoin market structure. Um, to me, that's I always think that's interesting. That's a top of mind for me. The next bear market, if we or whenever these miners start coming down to a reasonable price, I'm definitely buying some. I just can't pay twelve grand for an S19 right now. It's crazy. Yeah, the two of us tossed around the idea of going in and doing some mining, and hearing you say that's the the taste of regret is in my mouth right now from our (laughs) discussion six months ago. Josh, I bought S9s, guys, from a guy who went bankrupt in 2018 uh, for like fifty bucks. Damn. We need to find some bankrupt dudes, Josh. Yeah, we do. <laughs> I'm going to hit up Facebook Marketplace for some used S9s. I don't think I'm going to yeah. be lucky. No, probably That's not. That's really cool, Joe. I didn't know you were doing that. Yeah. Uh, I've heard stories of people using those to heat their home in the winter, too, which would be, I mean, my wife would probably kill me with these things screaming in the basement, but there's some pretty ingenious designs. I'm sure you saw them at Bitcoin 2022, these uh, basically they look like giant refrigerators that you can put like three or four miners in and it deadens yeah. the sound almost completely and it could potentially heat your house or maybe to, burn to it to down. The point, Who knows? <laughs> to the point about your wife, my, <laughs> my, my wife hates the noise from these things, but she loves the fact that, cause I have them in the garage that in the cold Chicago winter, she goes out there and I have like a heated garage and it's yeah, you know, love 70 that. degrees there. <laughs> We're always doing like new trainings, Joe, like, you know, electric car battery fire training, you know, at the, at the department, we're yeah. always bitching about it too. Like, gosh, dang it. I want to sit in the recliner and research Bitcoin. I don't want to go on this training window well, into our everyday lives, but we're going to be going pretty soon on Bitcoin miner fire trainings. Yeah. Like, Hey guys, <laughs> this is, these are S 19s. This is and, what you, you know, just don't get into trouble farm. guys. Don't get into trouble for putting miners at the firehouse with the electricity paid by the taxpayer. We've, we've, <laughs> we've never thought of that. We've never considered that. <laughs> we've never thought that you around. <laughs> you, you, tuck, you tuck one of those things in deep into the, you know, the stack of other stuff at the headquarters. Like, what the fuck is it that would noise? Be, it'd be 14 years before they knew that was there, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, the air You're going to need my, my legal defense. A lot of noise. <laughs> Just call me for the legal defense. I'll help you out. I'll All give right. you a discounted Bitcoin. Believe me, rate. we plan to hear if you get a phone call from us, it could happen for a variety of reasons too. I think we have a pretty robust disclaimer at the head of our podcast, but man, if our chiefs start listening, we could be in some <laughs> we could be in some weeds here pretty quick. So there's no doubt about it. Wait, while we're on this subject, I was gonna ask this off the top, but uh your your 
dad was a firefighter. It sounds like your grandfather was also a fire chief. Talk to us about growing up as the uh, son of a couple degenerates. Yeah, no, it was, it was, uh, I don't know what I, what mistake I made. Um, <laughs> I think my dad always wanted me to follow in his footsteps. He loved it. Um, he, you know, he was, he was on there until his retirement. He got to retire pretty early, um, never made a ton of money, um, but was always interested in like financial markets and mm-hmm. very you know down to earth, blue collar guy. My grandfather was the same way, you know, they, they, they look at, they looked at the stock market as all just to be honest, like a big scam. Um, they were kind of interested in it always, but they never really got it. They always thought it was like a rigged game. That's the natural reaction. And uh, I still faced a lot of that when I was talking with him early on about Bitcoin. Um, it did orange pill him successfully. And it was hard, though. I mean, there's just a certain and I was going to ask you guys this, like there's just this natural reluctance about it from a lot of blue collar people, which to me is a little bit um, you know, I think it's frustrating because I think the way it's designed, it's designed in sort of a fair way where you don't get, you know, privileged access, you don't get the kind of, uh, you know, preferential treatment. And uh, I was able to do it. To me, the thing that he finally got through to him when I was talking to him again and again, was that he understood the idea that no one controls it after a while. Like that was the key thing. The idea that you can have something that no one controls. Mm. Once I got that through, then it clicked to him. Uh, But it was hard. I mean, it took took years and years and basically from, from 2017. But you know, I think it's interesting, like, you know, Bitcoin for, for, for blue collar folks, uh, to me, I think it naturally is something that is always going to take that third, fourth, fifth hit mm, yeah. that you need to get past. Um, you're never, I, I've never run into, you know, maybe a, like a higher level investor, they'll get it on the first swing or second yes. swing. But the, the, the more blue collar folks like my dad and uh, my grandfather has passed, I never got to orange pill him. Uh, but uh, it was always the multiple hits, the succession. But yeah, I don't know. What yeah. do you guys think? I mean, what what messages have you guys found to be effective? I mean, the, you 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 just identified like that. This is what we're trying to do here. I mean, this is like why we started this. And these conversations are representations of us talking ears off at the firehouse. Um, like we like the people we work with. They they're the, today's firefighter. At least like in at the agency we're at, like some really very extremely smart, capable individuals. I think some of that, and I don't mean to, I mean, I'm not undermining firemen anywhere, but I think like the area we're in, a lot of people are getting into, they're not just looking to sling axes and spray water. Like most of what we do for a living is medical. I don't know. I think you're getting, it's become more career oriented. The pay has caught up some, um, even like real wages have caught up in the last 30 years from where they would have been, like maybe when your father would have started. So you're getting like a, you are getting like a high caliber, intelligent individual. It's just where they're channeling their energy isn't going to be towards finance and macroeconomics. So a lot of it's just starting them on that learning journey. And I mean, once that ball starts rolling, at least with a lot of our coworkers, I mean, we're, the orange pill cadence is increasing dramatically, but yeah, it takes multiple touch points. It's getting easier in this climate just because Things are more obviously clownish today financially than they would have been even 10 years ago. You know, we talk about on the show, like there's just more touch points, like things are obviously fragile. You're seeing inflation being talked about mainstream. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's I I don't know. You've you you summarize kind of why we're doing this. And it is it's like been an unbelievable joy for Josh and I to 
even just with the people we're around to have this podcast have resonated with some of our our friends and coworkers. Yeah, one and, of the things my my uh, my dad always told me is that at least when he was on the force, like he would basically would tell me like you know he was really lucky because of the the area he was in, you know the, the particular chief he had. There was a huge variance, and he had buddies at other you know fire stations that weren't as lucky. I'll leave it at that. They, they yeah. weren't happy with, you know, basically uh, their assignment. Do you see the same thing today? Is it the same sort of similar approach? Like There's there are wildly departments. different departments around us with dispositions yeah. that change very, very dramatically by department. Um, the one specifically one nearby is like, they think they're, you know, the New York fire department of the suburbs. And, you know, you've got just a wide variety of different environments that people live in in different departments around us. It's it's kind of wild how different it can be. Is, is it political? Yes. Did you say it's political? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we would be in the category. Like, we're we're lucky. Like, the people we work with are, I think we're at a great place. We we consider it. I mean, I, the, the fire service is good in our area in general, but we're definitely at an oasis. We don't plan to leave. Like, it's just, it's really good people. It's, it's a, yeah, you're not going to get rich off of it, but Man, it's a fun, it's a, it's a fun, rewarding gig. It, there, you talk to very few firemen that are like, nah, I hate it. You know, at most, mo, it's pretty compelling how many people love the job, which it sounds like was true in, in your family as well. Oh, they loved it. Like I said, I was a big disappointment, right? So, oh, come on. Follow the footsteps. <laughs> I do think, though, that it's a, it's a hugely generational difference, though, between people that are easier to orange pill and that aren't, even in our department specifically, younger people. I mean, I think it's probably because they've grown up with video games and they understand this digital world a little more natively. And people over the age of 40, 45 or so have a much harder time grasping this, at least on first blush, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, also, you know, a 54 a year old firefighter that's done this for 29 years looks at, rolls their eyes at Dan and Josh, a couple new guys just barking all day, you know? So, um, but it, it is, important. I mean, this is no joke. Like that is the, <laughs> that is the cohort of people we work with that are in most desperate need of this hedge, you know, reliant on a pension, probably quite a bit of fixed income exposures. They've scaled off of quote unquote risk in their portfolio. They need Bitcoin and we're, we care, you know, we care about our retirees, people that are close to retiring, obviously are people that are our agents still have some time left on the job. Like this, this matters deeply to us. Well, to, to that point, you brought up, and I forgot to mention that. You know, one of the things my dad's been struggling with is that, you know, as a firefighter, he's he was depending on his pension, right? Huge. That was his. You know, if this is going to get him through retirement. Uh, in terms of the cost of living now, it's like nothing. It covers you know a few hundred dollars worth of groceries basically at this yeah. point. But the scarier thing, guys, which I think is going to happen across the board because of the retirement crisis, is that. Um, where he, he was uh, on, uh, at the fire department in Harvey, they're like almost insolvent. Yeah. I mean, there's publicly yeah. filed cases about their, their pension and how, you know, everybody's We're aware of their pension. specific yeah, situation. They are like one of the town worst. in particular. Yeah, they're one yeah. of the least funded pensions in Illinois. Right. So like, you know, you look at that and like, is that the canary in the coal mine? Are there going to be others in Illinois mm -hmm. that are similar that, you know, maybe not, hopefully, God willing, not yours, but like other departments that are not as, as uh, you it know, is. financially secure? It is going to be interesting to see how this plays out. I'm going to just quick dive into this, but they just consolidated all these pension funds in Illinois, like uh, around 400 different departments, all consolidated funds. They still have segmented accounts 
Um, but when one of them does go belly up and it's going to happen, it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out because my prediction, and I think Dan would agree, is that they're going to get bailed out by the other funds and they'll end up conglomerating all of it into one giant pot, um, which is kind of what we feared about this whole consolidation to begin with. Um, the writing's on the wall, um, as far as I'm concerned. That will very yeah. likely happen. You know, we we kind of like strike this balance at work of, you know, as I say, trying not to be chicken little, you know, inciting panic, but also really encouraging people to be prudent and right. protect themselves. And um, <laughs> there's nothing more pristine for that purpose in our mind than Bitcoin. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk about shit coins before we close this out. Uh, back to the, the hot Altina discussion that I listened to the other week, like there was some banter between the four of you about just like being surprised that the altcoin market has perpetuated at the extent it has. Are you surprised that it's still at this level? I don't, I, if I remember your comments, you're not. No. Why, where do you think we're going? When does it implode? Does it ever implode? Do any of them have usefulness? I don't think it ever implodes. I think individual coins and projects implode. Um, I think you will continue to see for the foreseeable future, you know, three, four, five years out, you're going to see new batches of altcoins. They're going to come in. Altcoins are really actually good for Bitcoin, in my view, because what altcoins do is they effectively drain in new capital from people. I mean, it's bad for the participants, but they pull in a lot of new capital with everybody who thinks they're going to get a 50 or 100x. They take that capital and they drain it into Bitcoin because the smartest market participants that understand what's going on, the traders that are trading altcoins, they, their reserve account, their, their unit of account for assessing gains is Bitcoin. So, you know, they'll trade these things. I, I know some of the really good traders, um, huge outfits, hedge funds that trade in these things, and they still store it in Bitcoin. They move it back to Bitcoin. That's their their unit of account. So to me, uh, it's unfortunate for retail because, again, retail gets screwed. They, they're led down the, the path of thinking these things have some sort of value. They lose, you know, a thousand bucks here, two thousand bucks here. And then it takes them, you know, a couple of years to really understand how Bitcoin is different from all these things. Uh, but what I always say is that there's nothing, nothing creates Bitcoiners, true Bitcoiners, like a bear market in alts. Uh, once <laughs> there's a true bear market in alts, those people come back into the fold and they realize the error of their ways. So to me, I don't see any reason why it will change. I think the scam will change, whether it's you know DNA on the blockchain or some new fad that comes down next, um, that will be there. There'll be a lot of people that, um, there'll be a few people that make a lot of money and then the most people will get wrecked. So to me, you know, I always say, like, if you're going to gamble on these things, make sure you have a core Bitcoin holding and don't touch your Bitcoin holding. I don't actually care if people want to gamble. I mean, to me, I, you know, it's their money. I think it's yeah. a waste of money. But, you know, other people, if you think it's immoral, if somebody buys a, a shit coin, I don't really care. You know, <laughs> you're going you're gonna to get wrecked sooner or later. It's just my view. Yeah, I agree. Did you ever get frisky in the sh in the uh, shitcoin markets yourself yeah look look up this we bad did. boy yeah yeah um i lost it oh my god i don't even like thinking about it i bought aurora coin in, in 2014 <laughs> what did aurora um, never besides losing <laughs> money <laughs> <laughs> nothing no, I, I don't even remember what it did but i was reading something about how it would, how it's the next bitcoin yeah just 2000 really early on look it up though it's like total garbage and uh 
the, the worst thing about it is that after I bought it, it actually pumped pretty hard. So I'm actually, <laughs> what happens when you, when these things pump is you start to believe, you know, the story, right? One of the, the best thing that can happen for people that buy alts is that they just tank because then you're like, okay, I'm not doing that again. It's ba- when it pumps, then you think, oh, okay, well now what I need to do the next time we, I need to buy it and I need to sell it when it pumps. And then you buy another shit coin and it never pumps and you lose the money. It gets worse and the compounds the problem. So yeah, no, I, I, I bought those. Uh, I realized fortunately very early on, once I started digging the, into the technical aspects of Bitcoin, which take a ton of time, that these things are just junk. But you know, you look at the the thing, one of the things that's really strange again about Bitcoiners is like they keep thinking about the SEC is going to come save them, like riding on a white horse. Bitcoin doesn't need saving. <laughs> picturing Bitcoin Gary doesn't Gensler need on a white SEC. horse. Yeah, no, I, I'm serious. It's like, well, you know, I was arguing with who is that guy? J.W. Weatherman about all oh, the SEC. Like last year, he was like, SEC is going to crush all these altcoins. You have to understand. And again, this from my background as a lawyer, uh, I can just tell you like that that's not going to happen. There's no universe that happens unless there's new piece of legislation that comes down through Congress, because the way the SEC enforces the existing securities regime right now is they have to file a lawsuit. And anybody who's following SEC versus Ripple knows that lawsuits can string on for years before you get any resolution. So can you imagine how the SEC is going to be equipped with their limited personnel to file a lawsuit from for a shitcoin that materializes on a Tuesday afternoon randomly, it gets an airdrop, and then you know four months later, all its founders are worth millions and millions of dollars, and they're gone and they're out of the country. I mean that that that's just not practical. There's no enforcement mechanism that allows the scale and speed you need to confront a market yeah. like that. That's twenty four seven, and yeah. you know, people can be fleeced. There's like fifteen thousand of, of these things. Yeah, it's it, it's just not practical. So the only thing that will change in my mind is if we get a new piece of legislation that'll change the dynamics. But shitcoins will continue. Uh, my bet is very strongly that you're going to see a lot more of them before this thing is all said and done. What do you think is the ultimate fate of Ethereum? Great question. So I think that it will lurch on for a very long time. Um, I don't think it ever attains its goal of being, you know, I don't even know what its goal is now. Ultrasound I don't think anyone does it's changed computer. like four times. Yeah, I think it continues to lurch on. And to me, the fundamental watershed moment is going to be outside of crypto. I think it's going to be outside of Bitcoin even. When we have the macro events play out as I think they're going to play out and as we've talked about on this podcast, people will realize why Bitcoin is different from all these other things, why it does the one thing the world really needs, which is have a solid money. And these other things seem like superfluous. They're just like gambling tools that are are the equivalent of lotto scratchies. They're not anything useful. Um, And I think that comes, but we're going to, the view of Bitcoin will change once the world understands how important it will be to the macro economy. And then all these other things are just going to be sort of distractions. I look at them as kind of like barnacles on the hull of the ship that is Bitcoin. Yeah. Good analogy. I like I like what you said a second ago about you know price being a deceiver in these alts. Like I look at my own personal experience. I took a, you know, fit, the way I started out in this space is I took a 50% in in the, my crypto portfolio, 50% Bitcoin position, and then the other 50% I diversified kind of the way I have had my equity portfolio. And XRP just went absolutely ballistic. I mean, I bought it at like 13 cents and the thing went up to $3.30. And I just got completely blinded by the hot chick in front of me. Like,
honestly, like looking back, I do pride myself be, on being a critical thinker. And I just, the, the price just really deceived me. The point I'm making, if you happen to be a listener, a good time to learn is when the price is not pumping. So yeah. if you're listening right now and the price is not pumping, this is a perfect time to really lay the paper out in front of you, decide what you believe for yourself, how this fits in. Because when it's surging, even with Bitcoin, when it's surging, it's not a it's not a great time for people to build real sound conviction. And you can have people losing their Bitcoin when the conviction is just built on momentum and hype. Yeah, I, I know we're all here to make money, right? At least some of us are here to make money. Um, to me, like the money aspect of Bitcoin is the least interesting part of it. I know it's going to yeah. do well relative to other assets. Back to what I was telling you about, even going back to college, when I realized the system's so irreparably broken, um, I was looking for something literally that I think would be beneficial to humanity. Um, you know, the, the lifeboat analogy, I think I told you guys about last time I talked, I really believe that, that like when you have Bitcoin and you're investing in Bitcoin, you're storing your wealth in Bitcoin, not only is it a lifeboat for you and your friends and family, but you're effectively making the lifeboat bigger. You're, you're helping its capitalization. You're helping its development, doing things like this podcast. You're helping grow the lifeboat so that people can get into it so that it may be ready for when it needs to fill a role that the world, uh, you know, desperately needs. I mean, that, that whole effect, it's like, it's a positive development. It's really beautiful. If you think about it, like it's, we're all helping grow this network so that it can become the global monetary network. It's not there yet, right? It's still a tiny baby. It's like barely the size of, you know, some small countries' economies, but you, you know that it can be in a position where it can take over the reins for the global reserve asset. And I want to contribute to that. I believe in that. It's not just about like, you know, dollars and cents, Lambos, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We Amen. feel the same way. Otherwise we wouldn't be uh, out here doxing ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> Wasting our time once a week, relegating the wives and kids upstairs. Well, daddy goes downstairs and talks about Bitcoin, <laughs> but man, it's been fun. It has been. We could, we could seriously, Joe, we could have you on every single week and have plenty of content. You are, you are a lot of fun to talk to. Really appreciate your perspective. We will certainly have you on again in the future. Yeah. Thank well, we you. need to do we need to do the live episode, guys. I'm I'm well, we need to do the the Bitcoin and Brews episode. I'm serious. We, we are true. that is a priority yeah, for us. That's Let's do it this, this summer. We're gonna get three mics in the same location, get some craft beer, and do a rip session, Joe. Love we it. We would love to do it. Love it. Thanks for coming on tonight. Absolutely, guys. Thanks again, and we will chat soon. Take care. Thanks so much for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. We are also active on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. And our email address is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We invite questions, comments, or inquiries of any kind. We look forward to you joining us again on the BCB Podcast. <laughs>